The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. For the father in Anthony Doerr's novel, All the Light We Cannot See, life and parenting with it will take him in so many unseen directions. He becomes a single father, which wasn't part of the plan. His daughter loses her eyesight, so they learn to help her navigate the world in a way that was not a part of the plan. War breaks out and he needs for them to decamp out of Paris, not planned. At some point, he will no longer be there to protect her, as true as that will be for all of us ultimately, and so he and she will learn the lesson of separation and goodbye too. Again, not something he planned for, few of us do. What life means, what parenting will demand, has as its only constant, like life itself, change. Those of us who enter into this crucible of parenting, however we enter in as caregivers, will find ourselves at times daunted, often unsure, regularly forced to dig deep. We will fumble and probably have moments of triumph, or even, dare I say, some moments of pride. Perhaps the only other certainty is that whether we like it or not, like marriage, not in ways we could have predicted or would have seen or even chosen, we will grow and deepen in this set of relationships. We will be changed by it all. And although what is true of parenting is true of all love relationships in those ways, in my experience, parenting generally wins the contest for which love can throw in the widest array of curveballs, challenges, and surprises, at least in my experience so far. We will find our superpowers in the course of parenting, and we will likely find our kryptonite. <clears throat> What's yours? What's the thing you have to learn again and again, get gobsmacked by, tripped up over far too often for your own good? Mine is all the stuff about learning to let go. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who struggles with this piece of it. I had some early proof of that. When my daughter started kindergarten in the suburb of New Jersey where we lived, the first day of school, it meant that as suburban parents who lived more than a mile from the school, we dutifully walked our child slightly up the street to the bus stop. There was this handful of kids there with us, all in their new outfits, their new backpacks. Many of them, I'm sure, with laminated cards with our names and addresses and phone numbers. A new lunchbox, complete with a balanced lunch of things that met all of the school requirements, too, for not causing anaphylaxis in other children 
with our children instructed sternly not to share, which seemed funny given how long we had already spent trying to drill in the commandment about needing to share, but we got it. Learn to hold things in tension and paradox. And the bus came, and we all ushered our kids up the stairs with big waves and goodbyes and selfies and hugs, and the bus pulled away, and we all cut and ran for our cars. And we got right behind the bus like a funeral procession. Lights were blinking lest we get cut off from that head car. And I suppose that we told ourselves that we were doing this so that we could photograph that first moment that our sweetie gets off the bus. But let's be clear, we were doing this so we could make sure, you know, because it was kind of complicated. They had to get off the bus and then cross this lawn. And then there was this asphalt place where they had to find exactly where to line up with the rest of their class. And there was a lot that could go wrong in that. And I bet if you look closely at the photographs from that day, you can see this thin shimmer of the umbilical cord that wasn't completely cut at birth. Letting go is not easy. Julie Lifecott Hames writes about those same umbilical cord parents. She writes about it in her book called How to Raise an Adult a book drawn from her 10 years or more as the dean of freshmen at Stanford. She talks about parents walking their kid to their PhD meetings or interviews. <laughs> parents calling the employers of their 20-something child to, you know, register a complaint about one other policy or work circumstance. It isn't a new thing too, lest we think we invented it. She points out how in 1899, General Douglas MacArthur's mother apparently moved to West Point with him and lived in a suite at Craney's Hotel overlooking the academy where she could watch him by telescope to see if he was studying. And anyone who has read Augustine's Confessions, a page turner if ever there were one, knows of his mother Monica, who seems to follow him everywhere across North Africa, showing up just in time to do things like cast away the woman he loves, keep all his vices in check, God make me chaste and continent, but not yet, he famously said, and no doubt standing outside doors when he had big interviews with the powers that be in ancient times listening. Lifecott Hames points out that this, quote, very involved style of parenting offers short-term gains in the form of safety, opportunities attained, and outcomes secured, but at a long-term price. And one of those prices that gets paid is in our kids' ownership and knowledge of their own competency and confidence. Things like learning how to make dinner. Sometimes, I guess, helping can be too much of a good thing. At least I keep hearing that. 
which I know is true in other realms, like I'm sure I've mentioned before, a study of people recovering from strokes, the circumstances most heavily correlated with slower recovery is an overly helpful spouse. Competency and confidence. It seems to come around better with less help. And I know that intellectually. I've read it a lot of different places, but I find it hard to completely own, especially in my own parenting. It seems so unloving to me to let those that you love struggle and suffer. I mean, if you can throw a protective arm in front of a kid you love, why wouldn't you? Even your own body. So much easier to take the awkwardness or the hardship on yourself than to watch them straining against and under it, right? Not entirely, they tell me. In our religious tradition, we believe that the lives of others are sacred texts from which we too can draw wisdom and learn. It's why we don't treat our memorial services like generic moments of witness, but tell as much as we can the story of a life so we can learn from it like a sacred text. And not very long ago, we did a memorial service for Ardeth Fortier, Ardith was a mother of six children and an honorary mother to others who she gathered up along the way. Among her kids is Carrie Steer Salazar, who many of you know, and who in fact came to this church in order to get to spend more time with her mother. Doesn't that warm every mother's heart? Where are you, Lila? Just kidding. Um, and Carrie did so because Ardith was busy, but loved church, and so coming to church was a sure way to get to see her mom. Ardith was a member here. She was active. She brought meals to people. She did all kinds of acts of service. She sang in the choir. She was fiercely curious and smart and free thinking, and she found her tribe of big-hearted, but also gutsy and free-thinking rebels here among the Unitarian Universalists. And talking to her kids, all I could just feel constantly was the incredible level of adoration and just how wonderful and highly functional her kids are. And I'm telling you that they're wonderful and they adored her and they're highly functional because also what came through in listening to the stories and I felt they were told just for me was that Ardith parented in a way that you might call now free-range parenting. Is that right? Carrie, I think one of your siblings even named it that, laughing. Those of you who came to the service know she loved to let her kids roam in the natural places where they often had their homes. She loved it because she had loved it as a kid. Her rules were you had to wear shoes when you were riding a bicycle or a horse. And if you went in the wild, in the wilderness for a hike, you had to take a handkerchief and a knife in case you got a snake bite. Because, you know, you'd tourniquet it off and then cut, suck out the venom. As a child, Ardith had learned to trust her ability to deal with circumstances, and she loved 
roaming in the world to meet what it had to offer her, and so she allowed her kids to learn and to love all that too. And I know it isn't a completely lost art, this approach to parenting, because I'm told every year about the Japanese children who are sent on their first day of school, do you know those stories? And they're sent out in this rite of passage that's considered important to walk to school alone. But of course, there are all these adults lining the street to watch out for them. Ugh. But this sending of our children out into the world, it can be so hard for me. I want to throw a bubble around my child and the kids that I love, this force field. I want to vaccinate them against meanness and violence and even pain. And I would spend my whole life doing it, I fear, or be tempted if I could. And yet I know from my own life experience that we all have to learn that the world is uncertain and pain is a part of it and so is wrong and so is fear. And I know my kid already knows this and that your kids and grandkids do too and the kids you love. And I know that strength and I know that resilience and a host of other skills are the ones that you and I only found most of us through experience that allowed us to learn them when we lived meaningfully in the face of what life would throw us. But it involves trust. Trust in this imperfect world. Trust in our kids being able to figure things out fast and in time. Trust in a bit of luck that that car will see them when they're busy on their phone or laughing with friends as they cross blithely the streets of life. Trust that the stranger will come along at the right time. Trust that even when things go wrong, they will, like we did, find a way to make something of it, even the hardest stuff, that alchemy of the heart that finds a way to turn hardship into a superpower or at least wisdom and compassion that we use as an offering to the world afterwards. And as a mother of a child who will turn 18 next week and go to college next fall, that trust has to be there because the letting go, unless I'm gonna get a room across from her dorm and a telescope, which I am not because somebody has to pay for college and also I do have some pride because life will force this lesson on me as it does on all of us. Eventually we have to let go. Ultimately in, in the largest sense, if I can be, you know, ministerial for a moment, we all have to let go and trust one another to the world. In her poem, To Have Without Holding, the poet Marge Piercy wrote, learning to love differently is hard. Love with the hands wide open, love with the doors banging on their hinges, the cupboard unlocked, the wind roaring and the whimpering in the rooms, rustling the sheets and snapping the blinds that thwack like rubber bands in an open palm. 
Learning to love differently is hard. Carrie told me this morning when I asked permission to talk about her mother that her mom was a secret worrier, which totally blew, I thought, my point in the sermon. That even as she sent her kids into the world, she hid how much she worried about them. But actually, that's a perfect point for the sermon. That learning to love differently has always been hard, even for those people who make it look so easy, and maybe it's always been hard for all of us and the people who passed us into the world, and the only way through it is to practice. Ugh, God, the practice. Trusting that shoes and a snake bite kit will be enough, that with that and their own inner resources, those we love will find their way through the wilderness places. Trusting that the world that meets them will be like the streets of Japan on the first day of school, lined with caring neighbors, people who themselves had once been met with caring neighbors on a long ago first day, and that this is also the order and nature of the universe in which we reside. Trust that we have loved our kids enough to knit them up strong inside, strong enough to take a few blows to the ego, to life plans, and continue on the slightly deviated path ahead and find and make the merry, meaningful adventure that awaits them there, wherever that is and ground ourselves, too, in what the father in Doors' novel sees in his daughter as he bathes the small, young, vulnerable, but powerful, too, girl that night on the cusp of all that will face them. See all of that and our role in it, too. See that his daughter is so curious, so resilient, that there is this humility of being a parent to someone so powerful as if he were the only narrow conduit for another, greater thing. That's how it feels right now, he thinks, kneeling beside her, rinsing her hair, as though his love for his daughter will outstrip the limits of his body. The walls could fall away, even the whole city, and the brightness of this feeling would not wane. Ground us in this spirit of life on this Mother's Day. Bless all who mother the world, ourselves among them. Bless our fierce devotion, our gentle, protective hearts and arms, and help us to live into the hardest requirement of love, the letting go to trust that the wind will find the wing. Amen. I baked with my mom from when I was four. I started out by scooping the ingredients, 
When we got to the brown sugar, I would always steal a pinch since it was the only time I got to taste that unique molasses-y sweetness. Later, I observed and learned how to cook full meals. And I cooked my first dinner for my family when I was about 10. Spaghetti with a homemade ground beef sauce that was little more than canned tomatoes, oregano, powdered garlic, and usually a glug of red wine that made it smell delicious and sophisticated as the alcohol burned off. I had no originality, of course, just doing it the way my parents had showed me. Soon, I had three recipes in my repertoire as I added in chili and roasted steak. These recipes were not hard, but that was part of my parents' brilliance. Once they had seen me succeed a couple of times, they didn't need to supervise me. As soon as I was tall enough to easily reach the stove, they could let me cook without even being in the room. I don't know if I particularly enjoyed cooking, but I definitely liked the feeling of responsibility that came with it. When I was 15 and told my mom that I wanted to try vegetarianism, she laughed. I don't hold this against her. Did you notice that my first three recipes were all beef? Even a little older at 15, the only vegetable I would happily eat was a Caesar salad. And I demanded meat at every meal. But despite her initial skepticism, she was very supportive in me giving it a try. She took me shopping so we could fill the freezer with imitation meat, which is how I survived for the transitional few months as I slowly built up a taste for more vegetables and beans. She also made a hard left turn in her own dinner planning, as she was still cooking most of the meals. Rather than having to ensure that there was always an option for the kid who demanded meat and refused to touch most vegetables, she ensured that there was always an option for the vegetarian kid who didn't like vegetarian food. <laughs> this change in diet motivated me to get deeper into cooking. And my mom, who had been flexitarian before I was born and before that word existed, showed me her favorite recipes in her Moosewood vegetarian cookbooks. All of this prepared me for one of the highest pressure parts of my college experience. No, not the finals, or the term papers, or the job interviews, or the student group leadership. It was the year that I lived in a campus co-op and was given a weekly dinner shift. Four of us had under three hours to prepare a meal for our 60 hungry housemates. And in a small bit of cosmic revenge, I did not get into one of the vegetarian co-ops. So despite having been a vegetarian for about half a decade at this point, I always had to ensure that there was a meat option and a vegetarian option. The four of us on the cooking shift 
would rotate who was the head cook every week, setting the menu and managing the day. And it was stressful, especially if we fell behind, which is easy to do. Do you know how long it takes to chop 20 onions? Don't forget to budget three minutes to wash your hands and put a Band-Aid on. Because the odds of a moment where you lose focus and make a mistake are quite high. I always looked forward to those cooking shifts, though. In the midst of the overwhelming and often abstract world of learning linear algebra, computer algorithms, and existentialist philosophy, it was nice to have an afternoon where I was forced to take a break from my studies and work as a team on a concrete task with a clear end state and no real consequences if things didn't go to plan. And cooking still serves that role for me. It is engrossing and physical enough to focus my often frantic mind and calm any anxious or upset emotions that I have. And it all started on a stool in the kitchen, measuring brown sugar with my mom, making chocolate chip cookies. Mm -hmm.